Good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Philippians chapter 2. <coughs> Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11 are amazing verses. In fact, one of the greatest gifts that you could give yourself would be to memorize this section of verses. Uh, one of the greatest gifts you could give your family is to teach your kids to memorize these verses. The, the section of verses that we're going to go over today are some of the most practical verses in the Bible. They come into play every single day, and it's going to be so exciting to look at this and just consider what God's going to say here. Uh, we've all heard that phrase. I've referred to it recently. It says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And we know that that is the emphasis on the life that we live. But just to let you in on a little secret, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Words are always necessary. You are never preaching the gospel if you are not using your words. And so our title this morning is to live and speak Christ. To live and speak Christ. You know, um, the proclamation of the gospel happens best when people see Jesus in you and when they hear about Jesus from you. Those things need to go together. Um, I was thinking about uh, this story I heard about this, this gentleman who he came upon this accident. There was this accident. A bus had turned over on the side. And he ran over, and there was a bunch of kids in the bus, and he wanted to try to free them. And so he, he just grabbed this door that was, that was there that was open, and he started pulling as hard as he could on the door. And he could not get it to open, and he finally just, he was distressed. He jumped off, and some other people went in and rescued him. And what he realized later is that while he was pulling so hard on the door, he was standing on it. And so the harder he pulled, it just did nothing. Have you ever met people who unsay with their life what they say with their words? They're trying so hard to rescue people, but the way they live is a complete contradiction from their message. What God tells us as Christians is that we are supposed to live like Jesus and we're supposed to communicate about Jesus. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians. And, and just consider yourself. When people meet you, just being around you, do they understand what Christ is like because of what you're like? When you're in the church, do fellow brothers and sisters of Christ, in Christ know how God feels about them? Do they know how God views them by how you view them? Um, what about the unbelieving world? This is what it says here in 2 Corinthians 2.15. It says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are supposed to smell like Jesus. We're supposed to give off the aroma of Christ in the way that we live. It says, verse 16, to one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? And then Paul just talks about himself. So, so that's talking about a lifestyle and an influence. But look what he goes on to say. For we are not like so many peddlers of, the word, of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So his reputation, his testimony, his example, his preaching is an expression of his life and also of his words. You know, that illustration about the person trying to free somebody, that's a sad story, but I know personal examples of people. When I first got a job, I, I got a job working in a restaurant. And I remember I was 14 years old, and, and everybody got mad at the boss, and so they all, like, coordinated so that they could quit at the same time. And my sister happened to work there. So this guy owns a restaurant, and he's, he must have been desperate because he called me. I was 14 years old. But he just calls me, and he's like, hey, you want a job? And uh, my sister worked there, and so he ended up hiring me. 
But one of the things that he told me when I started working there is he said, when I started this business, I used to always hire people from church. But now I will never hire anybody from church. Because every time I hire somebody from church, they, they want high pay. They want to be able to be late to work. They have just an attitude of entitlement. They're the worst workers. I, I knew, and so, so he says, now I'll never hire somebody from church. Um, there was another individual who um, actually bought a house. And this person was in ministry, bought a house from another person in ministry. And, and they didn't use, like, a home inspection and all that stuff because it was a friendship deal. And when they did that, after the person moves into the house, he finds out that there's all kinds of foundation problems with the house. Like, the house had settled. The walls weren't square. Uh, th- there was, like, it, it was a major disaster. And this was what one person in ministry did to another person in ministry. Um, so often you hear about that, people showing up to church or people being around Christians and leaving with a terrible taste in their mouth. That happens. And one of the things I always try to tell people when they come to church, and sometimes people say, I don't go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there. And I said, I always tell them, well, you should come. You'll feel right at home. <laughs> you know, the church is full of people, and and we, we, many of us are believers, we're faithful, we're honoring the Lord in our life. Um, sometimes we show up and we struggle and, and we're working on things in our life. Uh, there's other people who come to church who are not even believers yet. And so a person walks into the door, there's no telling what you might experience. Um, so I was working construction shortly after I became a Christian. And um, I was in a Carl's Jr. and the guy in front of me had... Um, he had some coupons, and so he was given a coupon for a discount on Carl's Jr., and so me and the guy I work with were standing behind him, and I just said, uh, man, sure would be nice if we had some coupons, and this guy, you know, I was joking around trying to make conversation, so he turns around, and he goes, you want some coupons? I got some coupons, and I said, sure. He says, they're in my pocket if you think you can take them. And I just said, oh, no, <laughs> that's all right. I just, you know, um, I'm not going to try to take your coupons. So I go to church on Sunday, and then I go back to the service on Sunday night. And guess who our speaker is? <laughs> it's a missionary that our church supports that's come back uh, to talk to our church who supported him. And he was speaking, the guy who said, I got, I got some coupons if you think you can take them. You know, it, it's easy for us to look at those things and see those things, but those things happen, don't they? That is not God's intention for you and I. God intends that we would live in a way that reflects Christ and that we would speak in a way that accurately represents Jesus. We are the aroma of Christ. So when, we, when you think about the context of Philippians chapter 1 and 2, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul's talked about how he does everything for the sake of the gospel and that the Philippians are sharing in this work of the gospel. And, and he just says, I don't care what happens in my circumstances as long as it turns out for the progress of the gospel. And so he's been locked up in prison, and he is encouraging the Philippians, you guys are sad because I'm in prison, but you should know me being in prison is a good thing because the gospel is going out, and more people are preaching because of me. So there's this emphasis on just the priority of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, he's going to describe how do you actually present the gospel and preach the gospel? What is your attitude in life supposed to be like? And what is the message that you preach? And that's what we're going to see in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Now, here's the thing with Philippians 2 is that he starts by talking about the life of a Christian. And then he gives four examples. The best and perfect example of humility is Jesus. And here's the amazing thing about the example of Jesus' humility it is theologically the most, probably the most dense section explaining what happened when Jesus, who is God, took on humanity and died on the cross for our sins. And Paul just says, this is the perfect example of humility. This is what you're supposed to be like. There are many people 
who study theology, but there's this big gap between what they know and what they do. And here Paul's going to take this intensely um, packed section of theology, but he uses it as a practical example of how to live. And so Jesus is the best example. The apostle Paul uses himself as an example, and he just says, I'm willing to die for the sake of Christ. He uses Timothy later on in chapter 2 where he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you. And just think about this as we go through these verses. But he says, Timothy is the only one I can send that's like me who's genuinely concerned for your interests. Everybody else seeks their own interests. And then he uses Epaphroditus as an example. Epaphroditus goes to Paul, and he's trying to minister to Paul on behalf of the Philippians. And and so they can't be there to help them. So Epaphroditus says, look... As a representative of our church, I'm going to go help Paul. And then when he goes, he gets sick, and he almost dies. And then he finds out how upset the Philippians are. They love him so much. They have sent him to go minister to Paul. And when he goes, he dies for the cause of Christ. He doesn't die. He almost dies for the cause of Christ. But there's so much love between him and the Philippians that he now wants to go back to the Philippian church because he's just like, I don't want you guys to be grieving over me. I want you to see me, that I'm here. Like you just see this intense love between the Philippians and Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so this is just an example of people who are committed to living out the first four verses in this section, the first five verses of Philippians chapter 2. So let's dive in here. Let's consider what should our life be like, and then what is our message, which is also an example of what our life should be like. Let's look at this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. And uh, we'll just read verse 1 through 5, and then we'll come back and we'll kind of talk about some of the things in it. Here's verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So in verse 5, he sets up verse 6 through 11, where he says, you need to think about life. You need to have the same mind um, that Jesus has, this mind that is yours in Christ. If you are a Christian, then you should think the way Jesus thinks. And so we're commanded to think like Jesus. So we're instructed to do that. But Paul doesn't just command it. Paul's going to actually give the motivation. The first thing I want to notice is in verse 1, Paul actually explains what motivates us to want to live like Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Are you motivated? Do you have a desire to reflect Christ everywhere you go and in everything that you do? And if you do, what motivates you to do that? Because living rightly is not something that you can force on somebody from the outside. As Christians, living rightly is something that flows out of our hearts. It comes from what's inside. And and Paul's going to say, you should be motivated by the way you think about God. See, that's one of the big problems that people have in the Christian life is that they, they, they do devotions. And they just try to get like a devotional thought from somebody. And so you get these books. They have all kinds of things on different pages. And they just kind of find some inspirational thoughts. And, and they live their life that way. Or they kind of jump around. And they'll, they'll, they'll read like one verse here and one verse here and one verse here. And it's not that those things are bad. But that is not what a Christian needs as their steady diet. Every Christian needs to be reading the Bible. You start at the beginning and you read to the end. There's people who don't think you need the Old Testament. I just want you to know you need it. You need it all. 
and you start at the beginning and you read to the end. And then when you're done, you should do it again. I once worked with this pastor, and he's way beyond me, but he used to read the Bible three times every year, and he was an old man. But if you looked at his life, you could tell that he had been reading the Bible, um, that he had been reading the Bible three times a year. The way he knew Scripture, the way that he lived his life. Um, I, I do also, I have various Bible reading programs that I do, and I, I read this one that was designed by some professor where I read about 10 chapters a day, and then when I finish, I just start over and read it again. I used to get discouraged uh, when I was reading my Bible program because if I would miss a day, then, you know, you got to try to go back and catch up, and it was really difficult. So my Bible app has this little button that says, catch me up. And so what I do is I read, and if I miss a day, I don't worry about it. I don't feel so discouraged by it. Sometimes I'll go back and read multiple days at a time, but I don't feel discouraged and I, I don't actually read on the calendar. It was kind of interesting. This year in January, I started over. That rarely happens. But I just read through the Bible, and then when I'm done, I do it again. And then when I'm done, I do it again. And one of the reasons that that is so significant is that we don't live right. We don't treat other people correctly. We don't think about other people correctly if we don't have a clear view of who God is. And just a little secret, God is no different in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. And there's people who read things in the Old Testament and it troubles them. Well, read it more and think about it more. Think about it in light of what the Bible says in the New Testament. Think, th put it all together and think about what does this mean? But this is what he says here in verse 1. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ. I just want to ask you something. When it says if, um, just so you know about the Greek here, there's different ways to, to say if. There's an if and it is true. There is an if and it might be true. Uh, there's, there's, if can be used in multiple ways. In this way, it is saying if and it is true. And so Paul is saying if there is any encouragement in Christ. Let me just ask you, is there encouragement in Christ? Are you encouraged by who Jesus is? I, I think about how encouraging um, Jesus is to me. And, uh, and a lot of times the encouragement that I feel about Christ or, or from Christ is related to things I've read in Scripture. I think about God's amazing forgiveness. I think about his love. One of the super encouraging things to me is when I think about the most evil king in the Old Testament. Um, he's this terrible, wicked man that just does terrible things in the nation of Israel. And so then God actually punishes him and throws him in prison. And, and what it says is that when he's in prison, he humbles himself and he repents. And God restores him as a king in Israel. And so it just like that is super encouraging. I think about the, the woman caught in adultery where Jesus goes up there and there's all those accusers. And then all the accusers leave. And Jesus says to her, where are you, your accusers? I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. I think about Mary and Martha when Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha came over and says, hey, she's, she's sitting and listening. Tell her to get in the kitchen and help me work. And Jesus doesn't give in to pressure. He says, no. What's better is that she sits at my feet. Like he cares for her. He protects her. He doesn't give in to the pressure of people around. Um, when you think about Jesus healing people, you know, they were keeping an eye on Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, and his heart went out to people. He was compassionate toward people, and he healed them. Like, I just think about all the things that I hear about Jesus. Even when Jesus disciplines us or punishes us, it's for our good. And so when I think about Jesus, I am so encouraged. When you think about encouragement, it's something that inspires you on, something that motivates you, something that lets you know the direction that you should go. I am encouraged by Jesus and what he is, who he is, and what that means in my life, that my salvation is not based on my goodness or my works. And I am so encouraged. Is there any encouragement in Christ? I mean, it is overwhelming. The only reason that we would be less encouraged is because we haven't thought about it much. The more you think about Jesus, the more encouraged you will be. It, 
is there any encouragement in Christ? Is there any comfort from love? You know, the fact that Jesus says he calls us children of God. Um, Jesus loves us for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Everything that happens in verse 6 through 11 is an expression of Jesus' love for us. Is there any comfort in the fact that Jesus loves you? I think about God's sovereign control, knowing that nothing can happen to me apart from God's love and God's care and God's protection in my life. There's nothing in life that's out of control. And sometimes we don't understand it. Sometimes we face things that are devastating. But knowing there is a God who loves me, who holds the world in his hands, man, that is so comforting. Is there any participation in the Spirit? That's what Paul says to the Philippians where he just talks about their fellowship, their participation in the gospel. What kind of connection and fellowship and participation do we have in the Holy Spirit? You are a temple of the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. I mean, the Holy Spirit is in you. The, the Holy Spirit is what brings unity. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body. So what brings unity? It's the Holy Spirit who lives in us. In fact, so committed to us that 1 Corinthians 6 talks about sin. And it says when you sin, you take the Holy Spirit with you. You know, we don't lose the Holy Spirit. God doesn't leave us when we sin. The Holy Spirit is in us and has put us in one body. And that's like this permanent fellowship and sharing. And the Holy Spirit gifts you to be the person that God wants you to be. So is there any fellowship in the Spirit, any participation? Absolutely. The Holy Spirit is the source of spiritual power. What about the next one, any affection and sympathy? You know, we'll consider what it means that Jesus was human, what Hebrew says about Jesus and how he understands how we feel. Think about that. Affection. God feels affection for you. In chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, I long for you with the affection of Christ. Even the love we have for each other is God's love that pours out of our hearts through us to another person. And so all the love that we experience is God's love. It's his affection for us. And sympathy. Man, this affection and his sympathy, he kind of knows when you're struggling and when you're having a hard time with things and when you blow it, God understands and he loves you when he comes to your rescue. So are any of those things true? Absolutely, and it's so overwhelming and that is what is supposed to motivate us. If God is like this toward me, then how should I be toward others? And I think often... We are hard on other people because we don't think about how merciful and gracious God is to us. You ever heard that passage? Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. And I want to be merciful to everybody in my life. Why? Because I need God's mercy. And often we're hard on other people because we don't think about ourselves accurately. We don't think about the mercy that God has displayed toward us. And so, powerful. So, if those things are true, those, those motivate us to live rightly. And if we're motivated to live rightly, what will that look like? Well, look, let's look at verse 2. And Paul says this, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So, I'll just say it in a word. It's unity. It's unity in the body of Christ. Did you know that unity is not uniform, uniformity? Uh, to, to be unified doesn't mean everybody's the same. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, um, the Apostle Paul talks about spiritual gifts and how God has put a spiritual gift in each person, and then he's placed each person in a church, and that all the gifts are different. They display themselves different. They're unique. Now think about that the next time show, somebody shows up and they don't look like you think they should look. Or the way when somebody shows up and they think about things differently than you think about things. 
See, God has made us unique. He's made us, there's a variety of us, and God places us uniquely in the body of Christ, and God actually needs every single person that he's put in the church, and there's a lot of people not using their gifts, and just so you know, when you don't use your gifts, the church suffers. God's put you here so that you can be you in the body of Christ, and we're unified, but we're not all the same. Now, unity um, is being of the same mind. It's thinking the same way. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, um, talks about being renewed in the spirit of your mind. How are we renewed in our mind? Why are we unified? Well, we all read the same Bible. And the Bible tells us also that as believers, we have the mind of Christ. So we're reading the same Bible. We have the mind of Christ. We have the same love. And that means that we love Jesus and we love other people. And that is the defining quality and characteristic of a, ch- of a Christian. And to be united in spirit, man, that is to have like one soul. It's like your heartbeat is the same. Why did the Philippians love Paul so much? It's because they were all committed to the same thing. They were committed to the gospel, right? Their participation in the gospel from the first day until now, that's why he thanks God for them, is they participated in the gospel. And why did they love him so much? Because he was out preaching the gospel. That's what landed him in prison. And then they were really sad until they found out that resulted in the exaltation of the gospel and of Christ and more people preaching. And then they're like, okay, I guess this is a good thing. So there's that unity in The same purpose, it's setting our minds on things above, Colossians 3.2. One of the things I was thinking about is so often in our relationships, one of the things that I know for myself, there's times that I struggle in how I think about people or think about circumstances or situations, and one of the things that I always try to do is to just say, okay, now in light of eternity, what is important here? If I knew this person was going to die tomorrow, how would that impact the way I treated them or talked to them? If I knew that I was going to die tomorrow, how do, would that impact the conversations I would have or the things that I would do? And I think about that in people in church, but actually one of the things that's been super helpful for me when my kids were teenagers and as they were growing up and we were kind of struggling and I was just thinking through, okay, i got to help them, but this is really hard. What do I do? And that's actually one of the things I thought about. And sometimes I would have hard conversations with them, thinking about the fact that if you're going to die tomorrow, these are things you need to know. Or if I'm going to die tomorrow, these are things I want to tell you. And so sometimes it motivated me to, to address things and not let them go. Other times I would think, okay, in the scheme of all this, if I'm dying tomorrow, what do I, how do I want my kid to view me? How do I want them to think about me? And sometimes it would take my frustration and it would turn it into grace and mercy and kindness and help. And so when we set our minds on things above, when we think about things from an eternal perspective, it informs how we think about people and treat people. And it's that unified purpose that is a result of being motivated to live rightly before God. So now let's look at a description. This is one of the things I love about these verses and the Bible in general. There's all kinds of people who say, oh, I'm a spiritual person and I really love the Lord. And then Paul always, and in the Bible, there's always these things. Well, do you do this? Do you do this? Do you do this? Do you think this way? See, often we want to separate our life from what God tells us. James chapter 1 talks about that, right? That some people are, they're not doers of the word, they are hearers only. It's like a person who looks at his face in the mirror and walks away and doesn't do anything about it. The Bible was never intended for us to read it and ignore it. And this is one of the things that's challenging about Christianity. We are not saved by our works. We don't earn our standing before God if we're good enough, if we have this righteous behavior. Like our righteousness, Jesus was righteous enough for us. We don't live righteous, righteously to try to um, earn God's favor or earn our salvation. But Christians who have the right heart obey. Jesus says it this way, if you love me, you will obey me. The same power... The same spiritual power 
that saves a person from the penalty of sin also sanctifies a person. And so in your life, if God saved you, he is also going to sanctify you. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work it out because it is God who is working in you. It's kind of a really distressing and discouraging thing that Christians and churches separate God's work of sanctification from salvation. They are not separate. But it is also significant that we understand that we are living out a heart for the Lord and that we're able to define what that is. So let me just, Paul tells us what that looks like. How do you actually do that? What's the description of how a Christian would live? So um, let's, let's read it in verse 3. It says this, Do nothing... From selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing for selfish ambition or conceit. So conceit is like pride. Selfish ambition is you're looking out for yourself. By the way, those words are used um, as, an, as an expression of demonic activity. James 3, 13 through 16. If Satan and demons are influencing your life, you are selfishly ambitious and you are conceited. You're prideful like Satan. That is the work of Satan in a person's life. So if you struggle with selfish ambition, I want to put myself forward. I want to get some credit. I want to put me first. Uh, that's, a, that's satanic work in your life. And so this is serious. There's a lot of people who just like, I was talking to this one pastor, and uh, we were just talking about elders and what you look for in elders and stuff like that. And, and he just said, I'd rather have a person who's doctrinally sound and who lives the right way and is a little bit prideful than somebody who doesn't really know doctrine that well and is humble. And, and I just said, really? I said, well, the Bible says that God is opposed to the proud. So what you're telling me is you'd rather have some elders that God is against? Not me. <laughs> I'll take somebody who's, and, and I don't think elders should struggle with doctrine or, or any of those kinds of things. Like these are all important things. But I, I, I think God prioritizes pridefulness as a terrible thing that we avoid in ourselves and also in leaders. But this is about ourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you know why that is so hard, I think? So Michelle and I were hanging out with... Uh, um, well, I've hung out with lots of pastors and elders and leaders. And uh, there are plenty of examples where when you go away to an elder retreat, like I've gone to elder retreats, not at this church. We haven't had one yet, so I'm not talking about anybody here. But I've gone away to elders retreats, and you're going into a house, and everybody races into the house to get the best bed. Um, when, when we were going to the van to go to this thing, people are racing to the front to get the best seat. When you're talking about travel arrangements, you get somebody who says, pick me up first, even that, though that means to pick them up first and to drop them off first means everybody else is in the car twice as long. But those significant leaders always putting themselves first, running in for the best bed. The thing is, is that as a Christian, you should always try to get there first so that you can get the worst bed. You should always try to get to the car first so that you can get the worst seat. Like, think about, like, this is the great thing about being Christian parents, right? These are such hard things for us to work on. But you have your kids memorize this, and then you think about that when they start fighting over toys. You quote the verse to them and say, what does the Bible say about how you play with your toys? Or when kids are fighting over what seat they sit in. Hey, wh what is this verse? What does that mean? How, how should that be applied with how you're getting in the car? Or when somebody is on a sports team and they come home and they're mad because somebody else got picked instead of them. And you say, well, what does this verse say about how you're supposed to think about that? That's why we should memorize scripture and think about how to live it out and practice it. But God has been so helpful in helping us not deceive ourselves about where we are spiritually. 
Let each of you not only look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he just says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So that's how we live. And the perfect example of that is Jesus, who didn't look out for himself. He looked out for us. And I think sometimes the reason that this illustration is not as powerful as it should be is because we haven't been reading the Bible. We didn't read the Old Testament. Because when you read the Old Testament and you understand what God is like and you understand who God is and you read all those things and then you find out Jesus is God. And then you think about what it means that he took on humanity. It puts it in a whole new light. See, nowadays, Jesus is my boyfriend. And Jesus is my favorite. We sing songs about how I love Jesus and Jesus loves me. And, and it's almost like this romantic relationship. And the, the thing is that Jesus does love us. But he's not our boyfriend. He's not on our level. There's people who talk about, um, there, there are people who say, oh, I saw God. He came and spoke to me. And, and one individual was talking about how he was shaving in the morning and God spoke to him. And, and as I was hearing this story recounted, the, the person said, uh, what I wanted to ask him was, did you finish shaving? And often people have this very low view of Jesus. They, they don't understand that he is a God to be worshipped. They read the story of the Gospels and the crucifixion and Jesus' life, and they're not overwhelmingly appalled by what happened. They're just so used to it. Oh, yeah, God loves me. Jesus loves me. And they have this idea, I'm going to live my life, and Jesus come along with me and make my life good. And if I suffer, if anything goes wrong, well, then I'm mad at you, God, because you owe me. Humility is the opposite of an attitude of entitlement. So let's just think a little bit about what it says here as we speak the gospel and we think about what Jesus did and how that motivates us, but what's the truth of the gospel? Have this mind among yourselves, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then these are the words that should, like, really get our attention and shape how we view Jesus. Who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Although he was in the form of God. You know, Jesus, when it talks about Jesus being in the form of God, um, that's saying that he was always, like in the grammar here, it's talking about the fact that he was always in the form of God. That is his pre-existence. Jesus did not come into existence when he was born. When he was born, he took on humanity, but Jesus was always God. And that is in this passage, but that's everywhere in Scripture. And it says that he took on, in the form of God, that's the essential nature and, care and, and quality of God, his attributes. And he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held onto or maintained. He was willing to give up some of those things. And Jesus' character, Jesus, this is a challenging passage. Jesus gave up no divine attributes. He gave up by taking on humanity. He clothed himself in humanity, but he didn't give up his nature, his character, or what God is, what is due him. So when you think about Exodus, and this is the problem, people don't read Exodus, but when Moses says to God, God, I want to see your face, God says, nobody can see me and live. And so he sticks him in a rock so he can't move, and then God just like goes by and shows him some of his presence because if Moses saw God, he would die. Um, when God's talking to Israel, he goes up on the mountain and, and, and there's this smoke and this cloud on the top of the mountain and everybody in Israel is terrified. And they're saying, God, don't speak to us. Talk to Moses. Don't talk to us or we'll die. People were terrified of who God is. And what happens is we don't read that stuff. And it changes how we should be viewing Jesus. In Revelation, the Apostle John, this is Jesus' buddy. The guy who at the Last Supper was leaning on his breast and talking to him. When he sees Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, he falls on the ground as though he's dead. That is who Jesus is. He is God. 
fully God. Colossians 2.9 says, in him all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. Jesus was completely God. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. And because we don't read the Old Testament, we read the New Testament with this, this weak view of what it means that Jesus took on humanity. Like, think about that. People tried to trap Jesus. People argued with Jesus. Like, have you, do you think about that, arguing with God? Um, people told him what to do. Like, human beings walked over to Jesus and said, rebuke your disciples. Like, they told him what to do. This God that people would die if they saw. They would watch to see if Jesus would heal crippled people, and then they would accuse him. They slapped him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They dressed him up in purple and beat him up. They put him on a cross, and they nailed him to that cross and killed him. And they didn't think about this, that Jesus is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, they didn't think about what they were, who that was that they were doing that to. And we don't think about who Jesus is. And when we do, that will change our perspective. And so um, Jesus is fully God. Look at verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So we preach the deity of Jesus and we preach his humanity. Jesus was a real man who took on humanity, completely God, never gave up any attributes of God, took on humanity and lived life like a man. You know, Jesus prayed the way you and I are supposed to pray. Jesus slept the way you and I need to sleep. Jesus ate the way you and I eat. Um, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. There's no human experience that you and I ever go through. Jesus suffered loss. His dad died. His family hated him. He lived in a home with a bunch of sisters and brothers. There is no way that you live. There are not things that you experience that Jesus didn't experience except for sin. So Jesus never did anything wrong, but his parents got mad at him. Remember when he got stuck in the temple and Mary says, Jesus, what would you do to us? And then I look at that and think, man, I've, I've said that same thing to my kids when they got lost. Maybe I was the one who was wrong because we know Mary was wrong. Jesus wasn't. Jesus is the perfect example and he understands us. So we preach that Jesus is God. We also preach that he's man. And we also preach his work on the cross. Now when you think about the nature of Jesus... It's significant because it's what allowed him to die on the cross. Some people misunderstand Jesus, and they think that when he came to earth, he lost some of his deity, so his deity was modified. Um, if that happened, then Jesus isn't God, if he gave up any of his attributes. Other people see the humanity of Jesus, and they, have you ever heard somebody say, well, yeah, I mean, he was tempted, but he was God. Yeah, that was hard for him, but he was God. And there are people who view his humanity as being influenced by his deity. But on earth, and this is a mystery that we can't understand, on earth Jesus lived just like a man, doing the things that men did. He is our perfect example. His deity was unchanged, his humanity was unchanged, and they weren't mixed together because if you mix his deity, he's not God, with humanity, then he's not really a person. Jesus was not this third kind of person that wasn't really human and wasn't really divine. Jesus was completely God and completely man, and his natures didn't mix. And when he was on earth, he lived out of his human nature, even though he never gave up his divine nature. And so we understand that that is what allowed Jesus to die for us on the cross, to take the penalty of our sin. He humbled himself. Um, he did something he was not forced to do. You know, have you ever seen somebody, they're, they, they're taken and they are humbled by force by somebody else? By the way, God's going to eventually humble everyone. But Jesus was not humbled by some outside force. He humbled himself. He willingly took on humanity to die on our behalf. 
Um, John 10, 17, Jesus says that he does, that nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down. It tells us in 1 Peter 2, 24, that he himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you were healed. Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, this, this gospel message is not just in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 53, it says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. That the chastening for our well-being fell on him. Jesus was our substitute. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system is pointing to Jesus, who is the sacrifice for our sins. Uh, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You know, Jesus is people's only hope. John 14.6 says, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So we think about this example of humility and what Jesus did in, in taking on our sin, what he went through in the Garden of Eden, not the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane. You always got to get what I mean, not necessarily what I say. So this time I caught it, but sometimes I don't. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was sweating like drops of blood saying, God, I I want this to pass from me. That was his humanity, thinking about what he was about to endure on the cross. Jesus died for us. His righteousness, we get credit for it. That's why we're not working for our salvation. But it does not mean we're not working out our salvation. And so um, let's look at the last few verses here. So we preach that Jesus is God, that he's man, that he died for our sins, that he's the only way to salvation. And then what's our response to all that? We overwhelmingly worship God from our heart. That's what's supposed to happen on Sunday morning. We show up and worship God. You know there's a lot of churches where people fight over the music. Like, could you imagine? Like, the the music and the worship, this is about Christ, and yet people fight and dislike each other over music styles and other various things. When, as Christians, we exalt Christ. Think about this. Philippians 2, 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We exalt and worship God because of who he is. We worship Jesus because of who he is. We don't show up to church and say, tell me a funny story and and church is about me and somebody I hope will be nice to me and I don't like the color of the walls or I don't like these chairs, they're not comfortable or I don't like this or I don't like that. There are so many people who think church is about them. No, church is for you as a Christian as you show up to use your gifts to worship God, to love the people around you, to encourage them to walk faithfully in Christ. When somebody shows up and they're discouraged and they're having a hard time in life, you come every week like, you know, I was in this group of pastors this week, and we were talking about online church. And they were ta- somebody was talking about a challenging Sunday and how they were going to just do church online. And I just said, yeah, um, I'm thankful with all COVID and all that stuff that there was church online. But you know, church online is no substitute for church in person. And, and there's a lot of people, like there was this amongst pastors, this whole discussion of church online. And is it really different? And do we ever really need to go back to church? And why not just do church online? If, if, if church is a spectator sport where you show up to watch, well, heck, do it online. And for many people, um, when they show up on Sunday morning, they actually just show up to watch. They sit there. They don't serve. They don't care about other people. They don't encourage other people. They, they just show up, and it's all about them, and they watch, and then go out the door. And I would just say if church online and church in person is the same thing, then you're not doing church right. And part of that is worship. When we show up, worship is better when we're all doing it together. And so Jesus is exalted because of God. And it says every knee is going to bow. This is one of the things we need to recognize. That every knee in heaven, 
And the angels bow their knee and they worship God. On earth, those are believers. Um, as we know Christ, some of us worship God. And we should worship God. That's the point of our life. It's the point of church. Church not primarily about people. It's, it's about us coming and encouraging one another to worship God. And under the earth, uh, that's going to be forced worship. See, at the end, Satan's going to bow his knee to Jesus. Every unbeliever you see that shakes their fist in God's face, every atheist that's just filled with vitriol toward Jesus and toward Christians, every one of them will worship Jesus. You can worship Jesus willingly, or you can worship him forced by the power of God. Everybody will worship Jesus. That's what he's talking about. And so we worship Jesus. Psalm 40, chapter 5, we can't help ourselves. It just flows out of our heart. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. They are more than can be told. Can you think about the Apostle Paul? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And when Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me... I'll be ashamed of you. When we think about how glorious and amazing and wonderful Jesus is, nobody should be ashamed to preach the gospel. And so, yes, we preach the gospel with our life, but we use our words. And when we don't use our words, why? It's because we're not seeing Jesus for who he really is. We're not living in light of who Jesus is with that attitude of worship that we should have. Evangelism is when people see Christ in you and when they hear about Christ from you. Uh, Jesus is our powerful creator. He is our merciful high priest who took on humanity. He's the son of God who bore our sins on the cross. He is our resurrected savior and he is the righteous judge before whom we're all going to stand. You know, this is the Jesus that we need to introduce people to. Not some neutered version of Jesus that people have because they haven't read the Bible and they don't actually know who Jesus is. The real Jesus, man, that's worth, he's worth living for and proclaiming and preaching. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for what you did. Lord, help us to live out humility, to consider others more important than ourselves. Lord, to view life from an eternal perspective. God, I just thank you that you've express this deep theology in a way that informs what we do when we walk into church on Sunday morning or when we get in the car or when we walk home after work or when we go to the park with our friends. Lord, this theological truth touches every part of life. Help us to be humble, servant-hearted people who first and foremost are loving and serving you and Lord, that that is reflected in the way that we love and serve one another. In your name, amen.